0: Hello, everyone. I'm C.P. Leslie, the host of New Books in Historical Fiction. Today I'm speaking with two authors, both of whom have written books on Britain in the 1930s and 1940s, with a focus on Winston Churchill. Barbara Ridley in When It's Over follows the life of Lena Kokova, a young Czech girl who leaves Prague with her lover, a German socialist opposed to the Nazis. They go to Paris in May 1938, not long before the Munich Pact, permits Hitler to annex the Sudetenland. Lena's family remains behind. Otto goes on to Britain, leaving Lena in Paris. When we first meet her, she is embarking on yet another attempt to secure a British visa. Paris, January 1940. Lena Kulkova stood at her tiny fifth-floor window, surveying the rooftops of the foreign city that she had come to love but was being urged to leave. She was wan and thin. Her hair hung in limp strands to her earlobes, framing her broad cheekbones and sky blue eyes. She crossed her arms to gather her nightgown tight against the early morning chill. It was an inauspicious start to the day, but she focused on the streak of brightness piercing through the clouds. A puddle on the gray slate roof across the street reflected the shimmering image of a row of terracotta chimney stacks. Off to the left, a glimpse of her favorite landmark, the round balustrade atop the Sanselpiece tower tinted with a spot of crimson. Surely a good omen, she thought. You're up early, Marguerite said from the bed across the room. Sava, you are right? I'm going back to the embassy, Lena said. One more try. She straightened the eider down on her own bed and fluffed the pillow. If it doesn't work, you know you can stay here with me. Paris will be perfectly safe. I hope you're right. In Wickworth Hall, Judith Little approaches the same time period from a different perspective. Her novel also begins in France as Hitler's vo- forces invade. Annelle Le Maire, a postulate in a convent on the brink of taking her vows, escapes with the British evacuation of Dunkirk and finds her way to Wickwith Hall, the country home of Mabry Springs, an American, and her wealthy English husband. The Springs host a meeting of Winston Churchill and his entourage, as well as Reed Carr, the American representative of a French champagne company, and Mabry's first love. But we begin with Annelle. France, May 1940. Outside the convent kitchen, a truck rumbled past. Sister, Anel said, that's the fifth to go by. Yes, Sister Marie Michel said, not bothering to look up. Now try to be still. Arms out of her size, Anel balanced on a rickety wooden stool, worn and curved at the center from so many feet before hers. Sister Marie Michel's skirt rustled as she crouched low on the rough stone floor, Stitching the hem of the gown Anel was to wear down the aisle. It was a simple white sheath with sleeves to her wrists and a high collar. It made her skin itch and her face flush. She wanted to loosen the seams, stretch the tight weave of the cloth. Instead, she swallowed hard. These trucks, Anel said, they sound like army trucks. The vows bring such marvelous enrichment, the nun said, as if she hadn't heard. The ultimate act of giving oneself to give your whole being and sacrifice to another. Anel shifted her weight. The stool wobbled. She felt a sharp, quick pain at her ankle. Mother Mary, I stuck you, Sister Marie Michel said. Are you all right? She looked up at Anel with kind blue eyes, eyes that had soothed skin, knees and night terrors. Twenty years had passed since the accident when Anel, two years old, and her brothers, seven and eight, were orphaned and brought to the convent to live. Sister marie Michelle, like all of the sisters, had cherished and loved them as if they were the nuns' own flesh, maybe more so because the nuns didn't have that option. And now the day was coming, the day the sisters had kept tucked in their hearts since Annelle had arrived, the day they'd give her away. And now, please join me in welcoming first Barbara Ridley, then Judith Little. I spoke to them one at a time. Hi, Barbara. I look forward to talking with you today. Well, hi. Thank you so much. It's so great to be on. When it's over is your debut novel. Uh, How did you get into writing fiction?
1: Well, it's something that never really occurred to me until my mother died. She passed away in 2002, and a friend of mine, a woman I'd known all my adult life, started asking me, well, how exactly did your mom meet your dad, and... And I started telling her the story, and she said, oh, my God, that's an amazing story. She said, that sounds like a novel. I thought, oh, well, does it? I guess it does. But that idea just sort of percolated in my mind for a few years, um, and actually, my father got pretty sick immediately in the aftermath of my mother's death, so I was preoccupied with that for a couple of years. But. A a few years after she had passed away in in 2005 i started to think that i wanted to find some way to preserve her story and there were a lot of things i didn't know i knew the sort of basic outline of what had happened to her she was a refugee during world war 2 but there were a lot of gaps so a lot of people have asked me, well, why didn't you just write it as a kind of biography, a, a, a memoir about her life? But I realized that there was a lot I didn't know, a lot I would have to make up. And I, I'm a fiction reader anyway. I love fiction. So I thought, okay, well, I'm going to write a novel. So uh, I had done other kinds of writing in the past, academic writing. I'd had some articles uh, uh, published in peer-reviewed journals. In my other life, before I retired, a couple of years ago, I was a nurse and a nurse practitioner, so I had uh, had articles published in medical nursing journals, but I'd never written fiction. I soon discovered there was a lot I needed to learn about how to do that, but that's how I started on the venture, and I sort of was learning as I went along. It took me six years to write the first draft, but... I persevered, I took a lot of writing classes, went to writing conferences, got involved in writing groups, and gradually got a little bit better and figured out how to do this.
0: And you've published at least ten stories in literary magazines along the way. Are they associated with this novel, or are they completely separate?
1: They're mostly separate. Uh, They were stories that I wrote... Pretty much after I completed the novel, completed at least the first draft of the novel, I decided I just felt like I, you know, I got the writing bug. I wanted to keep on writing, so I started writing shorter pieces. A lot of them are what I would call creative nonfiction memoir kinds of pieces. Um, A couple of them are short stories, but um, some of the some of the memoir pieces are sort of related to the novel in that they are reflections in one way or another about my mother and my mother's story and my relationship to it but I actually start, even though they been pub- they were published before the novel was published I wrote them after I completed the first draft
0: Right, yeah, I mean it's quite common for a first draft to take a long time or for a first novel yes. especially to take a long time um, I mean Mine was ages before. <laughs> 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 I it's stuff in 1996 that I didn't publish until 2014, basically. But that was wow. the yeah. first stuff that I published. But, you know, I needed to learn enough that I could even fix things at a certain point. Um, so you mentioned that this is basically your mother's story. So what parts of when it's over are are her story and then we can get into the parts that you made up.
1: Well, the basic arc of what happens to the protagonist, Lena Kolkova, uh, in the novel, the the basic arc, the basic facts of what happens to her, to Lena in the novel, reflect what happened to my mother. She was a refugee. She grew up in, in Prague in the 1930s. She left Prague and went to Paris and then had great difficulty getting into England where a lot of her friends had already sought refuge, but she did eventually get in just a few weeks before the Nazis invaded Paris. She left behind her family in Prague, and um, her brother and her father did eventually escape and joined the Free Czech Army. Her mother and sister were left behind in Prague. So that sort of, that is... That reflects what happened to my mother, but there was a lot of the. There's a, in the in the novel, Lena Kulkova is involved with this guy Otto. There was someone like that in my mother's life, but I knew nothing about him. So that whole character of Otto is fictional, and their relationship and what happens to their relationship is fictionalized.
0: So the Czech angle is very interesting to me, um, in part because I'm a Russian historian and so I'm naturally more oriented towards Eastern Europe and Central Europe. But uh, also because I I actually normally don't like books about World War II because the Holocaust is so horrifying and uh, I even encounter too much of it in my work because my journal focuses on the Holocaust in the East. But uh, I do find this book really interesting because it looks at Britain, but not at the Battle of Britain. It's it's in the 30s and, and, as you mentioned, in Paris before the invasion. And then the early years up to the real beginning of the attempted invasion of Britain. And then it skips over until the last years of the war. Um, wh- what... Why did that work best for your story? I mean, it's a plus for me, but I'm, I'm curious that you decide to tell the story that way.
1: Well, I wanted to show, I see this partly as a coming-of-age story, so I wanted to show Lena as a very young woman in her with her family in Prague, beginning to get involved and sort of establish herself, find her own voice as a young adult. The, the whole thing of... of, of trying to get into britain showing how hard that was for refugees and then the sort of uh, you know the the adjustment to being in a in a totally new country the and what, what what that was like for her and then i wanted to move forward to the latter year or two of the war when things had really shifted By 1944, everyone knew the Allies were going to win the war, and everyone was sick of it. It was dragging on and on, but everyone, it was clear now that the Russians and the United States was in the war, it was clear the Allies were going to win. So then the focus became, well, what happens when it's over? What do we look forward to? What kind of society do we want to build? And... Lena gets very caught up in that, while at the same time, she still has heard nothing from her mother and sister left behind in Czechoslovakia, and that sort of in- overwhelming anxiety, that, and not, being, not, not knowing what was going on, waiting to hear what had happened to them, in the context of all this sort of excitement about building a new society after the war was over. So I was interested in exploring that, too.
0: Uh, yes, it must have been absolutely gut-wrenching. I mean, you kind of imagine, it's hard to imagine what it was like for people. Yeah. Did your uh, mother ever talk about that? Did, did I talk about that with my mother? Yeah, did your mother ever talk about it? Because I know a lot of people during the war didn't, who lived during the war, did not right. talk to their descendants about it.
1: I always, I knew the basic outline of what had happened, but my mother was, as you, as you allude to, typical, I think, of... So many in that generation and so many who had lost so much um, responded by just really shutting down emotionally. So she was a very kind of emotionally shut down person and never talked to me about what that was really like, what, what she suffered. I mean, very occasionally I'll get a little, little glimpse of it, but no, so she really didn't. She mm-hmm. really didn't talk about that. So I, in writing the novel, had to imagine all that. So tell
0: us about Lena Kulkova as a person. What, what kind of person is she? What's her background? Uh, what does she want out of life? You know, what gets in her way? All of those novel things.
1: Well, at the start of the novel, she's very young. She is living with her family. Her father is very conservative and repressive. They are. Jewish, sort of middle class Jewish, but they don't really identify as Jewish so much as they identify as Czech. This was a very new nation. Czechoslovakia was created in 1918. Uh, Lena is that generation that was born right after that and she and her family can see themselves as very patriotic Czechs rather than, than identifying as Jewish, but As the Nazis get to power, they're very close. Czechoslovakia shares a border with Germany. And then in 1938, the Nazis annexed Austria. So Czechoslovakia was really surrounded. And in the 30s, too, the worldwide depression was affecting all countries, including Czechoslovakia. There was a lot of poverty and hardship and there was the Spanish Civil War which was going on, which was really inspired that whole generation of young people. I, I sometimes say to people, it was for them, it was kind of the equivalent of the, of the Vietnam War for many of my generation. It really was something that radicalized a lot of people. So Lena gets caught up in this progressive movement in the 30s, the anti-fascist movement. Her father, though, is very conservative and uh, disapproves of all that. But Lena rebels against that, gets involved in this, with this group of um, progressive um, sort of socialist politics, uh, gets very inspired by the Spanish Civil War. Uh, she also has a, uh, a younger sister who is 10 years younger than her, so she, her baby sister. She's very attached to her, but kind of distant from the rest of the family. Uh, she does leave Czechoslovakia and goes to Paris as part of the work that she gets involved with in supporting the, the Republican side in the Spanish Civil War. And then the, the World War World War II starts, and she's trapped there in Paris. She does eventually get out, and she wants to find a home. She wants to find love. She wants to reunite with her sister. She wants to find a home. But she's caught up as... So many people of that time were in these extraordinary circumstances of World War Two, and she is trying to navigate her way through that and survive and build a home and find love and happiness. And there's a lot of barriers that get in her way because of the circumstances in which she is thrown.
0: So but, she's drawn to socialism, as you mentioned. Um, I had the feeling she was even more drawn to uh, Otto, who is a socialist rather than i mean maybe the philosophy was also very attractive to her because it was at that time you know perceived as something very idealistic rather than um, the way it we perceive it now at, after the collapse of the u s s r and and the various velvet revolutions and so on but what is otto's story
1: so Otto is Ten years older than her, so she's very attracted to him, and she really looks up to him. He is originally German. He's a German socialist. So he was a, an early victim of the Nazis. His, he had colleagues who were arrested um, when the Nazis first came to power in Germany. You know, there's that old poem, first they came for the socialists. And that was true. The the socialists and communists in Germany were rounded up and sent to the first concentration camp at Dachau. So Otto is one of those who manages to flee, and he goes to Prague. He escapes as a refugee from Nazi Germany and, and becomes involved in working undercover for the Republican side in the Spanish Civil War. So he's a very charismatic figure. He comes... Everybody looks up to him as someone who uh, has had experience, who knows firsthand what it means to be to live under fascism when they are all consumed with the fight against fascism and trying to prevent its spread. So he's very idealistic also and a very wise, sage, experienced. So Lena certainly is very drawn to him. As well as I would think, I think of being drawn to the whole philosophy, as you mentioned, it, it was seen as a very idealistic. This was before the time when people knew the kind of, as you said, the downside of what can happen under socialism and communism. So um, Otto, in turn, becomes very later on becomes very disillusioned after the defeat of the Republican side in the Spanish Civil War, the victory of fascism in Spain, which was very, very devastating to the left. And he becomes more, he changes and becomes more kind of morose and pessimistic and cynical while Lena tries to hold on to her idealism. And that's part of the dynamic that develops in their relationship.
0: So Otto leaves Paris. He leaves Lena Lena in, in Paris, um, in part because she is expecting that her younger sister will be able to join her. And she's hoping that that uh, her sister will join her and they'll both go to England to be with Otto. And uh, but she's there for quite a long time because, as you mentioned, she can't um, get a visa and she doesn't have the obviously compelling to the bureaucratic mind Um reason to, to be accepted, to, you know, to be given refugee status in Britain uh, that Otto has. And so what is her life in Paris like uh, when we first meet her?
1: Well, she loves Paris. Again, she's this very young girl. Paris is very exciting to her. At that time, 1938, 1939, Paris was full of refugees from Germany, Austria, and other Eastern pure and Eastern European nations. Also, increasingly, refugees from Spain, as the fall, as the, the fascist victory in Spain became evident and became realized. So, I mean, who doesn't love Paris? Paris has always been a romantic place, and in, it certainly was then, and full of these refugees, a very bustling ex, expatriate community. She has no money, but she has, uh, initially, she's working for Otto in an organization that he's involved in that is providing support to the Republican side in Spain. But when that all collapses, she has very little money. She scrapes together a few babysitting jobs. But she loves it, and she loves learning French. She loves wandering the streets. And in many ways, she doesn't want to leave. And as you mentioned, she then hears from her parents that they maybe are going to emigrate. They're making arrangements to send out some trunks of furniture and other things and that maybe they're sending out her baby sister to join her. So she feels like she needs to stay there to wait for that. But also for a long time, even really after the war started in September 1939, there's this belief that, well, France will never fall to the Nazis. France is strong. France is a major power. There's no way that Germany will attack France or succeed in that. So there's a sense of, oh, everything will be fine. But it's Otto who has a sense that that's not going to be true, and he is really determined. He feels some responsibility for her, so he is really determined to try and get her out and get her to join him in England. But she does have a great deal of difficulty getting a visa.
0: So eventually, I don't know whether you want to say how he does it, but eventually Otto does get her out, and she she arrives in Sussex, which is where you grew up, I believe. Yes, that's correct. And she, um, so what does she find there? I mean, it's for a young Czech girl or even a young Parisian girl, um, the English countryside must have been kind of a shock.
1: Yes, it's completely different. Um, She knew nothing about England, really. She had a vision of England as being just the sort of industrial revolution, the northern towns, or maybe she knows a little bit about London. But she finds herself in this small village in Sussex, she uh, she arrived in springtime, and this is still the period of what was called the Phony War, when there was nothing much happening on the Western Front, at least. Certainly Poland and Finland had some fighting, but there was nothing much happening on the Western Front in the World War uh, field then. And people, call, as I said, called it a phony war. Some people even said, oh, this is this will amount to nothing. They'll, the war will soon be over there So there's nothing immediate danger and she finds the countryside beautiful. It's, she, it's all green and she is enchanted by the beauty of the countryside. She meets Muriel who is the person who had sponsored Otto and this other group of refugees. She reunites with several other friends that she knew from Prague who've also reached the village. Muriel is this very eccentric She's the lady of the manor in this very traditional little Sussex village, but she's a very unconventional character. She's very liberal and unorthodox in a lot of her behavior, and she welcomes these refugees in not only providing them rent-free accommodation in a tiny little cottage, but she welcomes them into her social life and enjoys spending time with them. But as things start turning around, only a few weeks after Elena arrives, the Nazis do start advancing over and conquering Belgium, Holland, and then France. And then things really suddenly shift, and there's a tremendous fear of invasion, that Britain is going to be invaded next, and that gives rise to a great deal of fear and hostility and Prejudice against anybody who is foreign, and Lena and her friends get caught up in that
0: yes, that was one of the elements um, that surprised me, although I suppose it shouldn 't really have surprised me it's uh, it 's uh, an almost um, predictable reaction to being uh, to having a sudden influx of refugees it 's not a good reaction, but you can see it happening even now um, but there is uh, uh, a great deal of hostility, and it particularly, of course, is directed at Otto, who is German, um, but also to the Czechs. I mean, I think, well, I actually grew up in the south of England, too, so it's not too hard for me to imagine that many people weren't making a distinction between Germans and Czechs, but um, could you talk a little bit about that as a historical situation?
1: Yes. Uh, I mean, as I had known just a little bit about it, too, but um It was really a part part of my research that I became aware of and also quite surprised and horrified by some of the things that I discovered. And I think, I don't think most people are aware of this, but... uh, There were actual camps where they were put together. There were were internment camps, Mm -hmm. yes. There were German and Austrian um, citizens many of whom were refugees, many of them were either Jews or communists who had fled Germany and Austria for their lives, um, had found um, asylum as refugees in Britain, were then in turn arrested as enemy aliens, and sent to these camps, and then... Some of them were shipped off to the Isle of Man. There was this huge um, internment camp for the whole duration of the war on the the Isle of Man, which is a little island between England and Ireland. Uh, Some of them were shipped off to Canada and Australia. And in fact, there was um, an incident which I incorporated into the novel where um, a whole shipload of them who were being shipped off to Canada uh, were on a boat, the Arundor Star that was torpedoed by the Germans, and many of them lost their lives in that. But yes, I mean, and, and this was, there were probably some true Nazi sympathizers, but they were completely mixed in, intermingled in these camps with Jews and communists who had been wanted by the Gestapo for years and would have been... Um, sent to concentration camps if they had been sent back to Germany or Austria. So it wasn't a shocking thing to think about and to find more about. There were other restrictions. The um, village in Sussex where the Lena and her friends, who were mostly Czech, so they weren't subject to internment, but they had to, in this same time period in July 1940, they were ordered to move. No foreigners of any kind were allowed to live within 40 miles of the south, southern coast.
0: And in fact, so they, they were sent were... to London just in time for yes. the battle. Yes.
1: <laughs> right. Yes. Sent, in, sent into the. the, the, the uh, to be bombed by the Blitz instead, yes.
0: So um, you mentioned your research. How much research did you need to do to supplement your mother's story enough to um, to create a, a functioning novel?
1: I did a ton of research, and you know everything from finding out little details to really immersing myself in the whole period to understanding the whole historical time frame of what happened when during the war. So. Yes, I did a ton of research, and I found that I really enjoyed that. I did, uh, my research took the form of um, reading memoirs. I discovered, you know, both my parents had passed away by the time I started to work on the novel, But I found a couple of my mother's friends, uh, fellow refugees, had written autobiographies. I found their books on my parents' bookshelves. I read those. I read novels. I read non fiction I mean I read Hemingway, you know movable feast That wonderful picture of Paris in the thirties. Um, I read books about London about the war. I went to the Imperial War Museum in London, which is a wonderful resource. I discovered the BBC, in between 2003 and 2006, the BBC realized that the generation that had lived through the war was fast dying out. They put out a call for people to contribute uh, anecdotes, memories, photographs, all kinds of things, and they put them together on this, and it's online. You can find it, you can access it free. It's called the BBC People's War Archive. And there's hundreds of thousands of anecdotes and reminiscences there you can search they're categorized into the blitz or rationing or um, all kinds of things that you might want to know so I did a lot of research through those archives and I mean Google is amazing you can Google just about anything and you know what did the warning sound sound like in for the air rays what did the all clear sound like you can find all that stuff online and but there were a few things that i could not find online and so i ended up doing all kinds of little quirky bits of research going to an airport the airport museum the british airways airport museum near heathrow airport to find out about air travel between paris and london during 1940 and i went to the mass observation archives at sussex university which was actually my alma mater uh, so there was all kinds of research that I did. I went to Paris, I went to Prague, I'd been to both those cities before, but I went back to, you know, walk the walk where my characters would have walked, and uh, so all of that was fun, great fun.
0: Well, you did a wonderful job of of then taking all of that information and, and putting it in the novel in such a seamless way, I mean, it's... Um, The the research is clearly there, and yet it doesn't ever take over the story. It's really, I I do want to emphasize for our listeners that this is a beautifully written book and that they will really enjoy following Lena and Otto on their their journey. Uh, So what would you like readers to take away from when it's over?
1: Well, I think I see this as a, I think it's a story. It's a really good story. It's a story about love and hope. It's a story about ordinary people surviving in extraordinary times. It's also a story about refugees, and I would like people to make some connections between what the refugees had to deal with then and what refugees are dealing with now we're in the midst of a worldwide refugee crisis the likes of which we've not seen since world war Two, and i think we all we know that and and but maybe we don't realize how much uh some of the issues that refugees are facing today are the same as what was happening in world war Two. the people you know people were it was really difficult for jewish refugees to get into britain or the united states they faced all kinds of difficulties and barriers and we know what happened to those who were not able to escape so i would like people to maybe have some empathy for refugees today i also like people to read to reflect on communication then and now i think it's extraordinary when you think back to that time when people had no way of communicating, letters might take four or five months to get through. They had to go through extraordinary third neutral country resources and agencies to arrive. And then you would get this letter and it was five months old. I, I compare that to today. I, I mean, I get antsy if I don't get a response to an email in a few hours. You know, it's just extraordinary. I've just... I think it's so interesting to just reflect on what's the same and what's so different between then and now. And that, I think, is the beauty of historical fiction. That's what I love about fiction. It can take you to a time or place, and you live it through vibrant characters. So I hope that's what I've achieved here and that readers will take from this novel.
0: Yes, uh, I hope that they do too because it's certainly there. Um, are you working on
1: something else now? I am, yes, so, so slowly <laughs> because uh, I'm involved very much in all the work of promoting this book when it's over, but I have started work on another novel. It's completely different. It's a contemporary set in contemporary California and it's based on my clinical experience. I've been, uh, I'm retired now, but I worked as a nurse and then a nurse practitioner for over 30 years. And my work was with people who have severe disabilities. So this is a novel that is about a young woman who sustains a severe injury and how she regains her life after that. Well, thank you so much for sharing your time with us today. Well, thank you. I've, it's been a real pleasure. Thank you so much.
0: Hi, Judith. Thanks for agreeing to talk with me today. It's good to be here. Thanks for having me. You trained as a lawyer, I saw from your site. How did you get into writing fiction?
2: Well, I've always been better at writing than anything else. I can't do math to save my life. The periodic table gives me hives, so writing has always been my skill set, but I was oddly practical when I was younger, and instead of pursuing writing, I decided to go to law school. So I got a law degree, and I got a job, and then have been pretty busy doing that and raising a family. But the idea of writing a novel always stayed with me. And I read a lot. You know, I was always a big reader, and so I was one of those people who always thought, you know, how hard can it be to write a novel? Um, But I never really was inspired to um, really put forth the effort until I was reading a biography of Coco Chanel for fun. And I was about halfway through the book and I came upon a reference. It was just a short paragraph describing um, a confrontation between the British and French fleets during World War II. And when I read it, it stopped me short. At first, I thought it was a typo or an error because I couldn't figure out why the French and the British would come to arms when it was the Germans they were supposed to be fighting. So I did some research and found out that it wasn't a typo and um, that in May of 1940, the Germans invaded France, and by June of 1940, France had surrendered just one month later. And under the terms of the surrender, the French were required to turn their... Uh, fleet over to the Germans, and the fleet at that time was across the Mediterranean in an Algerian port called Mers el kabir So Winston Churchill was the prime minister of England at the time, and he knew that if the Germans got their hands on the French fleet, that it would be just a matter of time before England would be forced to surrender. The U.S. wasn't in the war yet, and England was fighting on their own. And Churchill was desperate because he knew the survival of England was at stake. So he came up with a plan that he called Operation Catapult. And under this plan, the Royal Navy set out for Marseille, kabir and they arrived the morning of July 3rd, 1940, just as the sun was coming up. And they presented to the French there a couple of options, which were basically destroy your ships by your own hand, right here, right now. And if you won't do that, then we'll destroy them for you. And the British, um, this was a bitter task for the British sailors. They, of course, considered the French their allies, and they were friends. And just days before, they had been fighting side by side with each other against the Germans. Um, And, of course, uh, the French didn't take this very well. They were humiliated that they had had to surrender so quickly, they were resentful towards the British for uh, evacuating, retreating all the, out of France all the way across the Channel and back to England. And they also um, considered, you know, the British their allies and thought, now why are you here kicking us when we're down? And so the French tried to escape the harbor and the British opened fire and they ended up. Killing over a thousand French sailors in the process of destroying most of the ships, so learning about that I was just I was just very stunned. I'd never heard of it before. I asked family and friends if they had heard of it, and none of them had and it just struck me that um, a story as heartbreaking as this wasn't common knowledge. so I was um, really inspired to finally start trying to write a novel that um, I'd always wanted to write. So I thought, um, you know, how hard can this be? All I need to do is come up with some characters and a plot. And I knew I wanted the setting to be, um, I I knew I wanted the book to be the kind of book that I would want to read. So instead of having it set on a naval warship, I was going to set it in a country house in England. And, um, I you know, just started trying to come up with how I was going to write this and thought I could knock it out in about six to eight months, a year at the most, and that was 2002. So it took me quite a bit longer than I actually thought it was going to take. It was um, a pretty big uh, learning curve that I had. I had always... Um, As I said, I always thought I was a pretty good writer, but what I didn't realize, I didn't know, was that I did not know how to tell a story, which there's a difference, as I found out. Um, And so what I did, one of the first things I did was I joined, uh, or I took a fiction writing class, and when the class ended, the group of us decided to keep meeting, and uh, we're, we're still meeting once a week to this day, 15 years later so they really helped me along to turn the idea into a novel and I couldn't have written Wickwith Hall without them as I say in the acknowledgements to the book they've been with me since the beginning and there have been many 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 beginnings so um, they're the ones who really taught me how to tell a story and the great thing is um, that they are very tough they don't mince words and uh, we, I think the reason we've lasted so long is that we're not there to stroke each other's egos and make each other feel good, but we're there to really make each other better. Um, and it can be tough. I learned the hard way to never go in thinking the pages I was bringing were perfect. In the beginning, I made this mistake a few times. I would think what I wrote was really good, like Pulitzer Prize winning good, and I'd read the pages out loud to the group, that's how we do it, and when I'd finish, there'd be this long, awkward silence, and then finally someone brave would start telling me everything that was wrong with the pages. Um, But, you know, they were right, and that was how I learned, and now I go in with no expectations at all, but, you know, usually our comments aren't so draconian, they can be about pacing or um, character development, kind of the common things. I think that critique groups go over. So I'm still a lawyer. So I'm I've been doing both at the same time, and um, it's good. I mean, I think writing, uh, for most writers, I would think, is kind of an escape. It's um, it's a place where I can go. That's my own little world, and people have to do what I tell them to do, and it's sort of a stress reliever for me.
0: I'm really glad you mentioned the critique group. I've been a long-term critique group as well, and I think if you find the right mix of people, it's really um, a wonderful experience and in terms of teaching you about writing and helping you work out things out. What I find is that I now recognize that my fellow writers have their own ways of approaching a story, and so when I see... The one who is particularly character-focused, she she tends to start out by writing these enormous monologues, often interior monologue, <laughs> and the rest of us are saying, okay, okay, <laughs>
2: <laughs> <laughs> now something has to happen.
0: <laughs> well,
2: do you, I don't, but that's just like her style. We- Do you hear their voices in your head when you're writing?
0: Oh, absolutely. Yes, absolutely. I mean, that's when it's really fun, is when you're just writing it down. And that's the other thing about a critique group, is you can say stuff like that to fellow writers, and they understand what you're talking about, because to everyone else, it sounds like you're getting ready to get committed, you know?
2: (laughs) I know, I know, exactly. I mean, they say writing is a solitary experience, but I feel like I'm never alone, because I'll write something, and I'll think, oh, no, 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 so-and-so is going to say that's all wrong so yeah they're always there in my brain <laughs> mm-hmm.
0: so you've given us a great background to Wycliffe Hall um, the the actual story that that wraps around this involves three separate characters so let's talk a little bit about them uh, beginning okay. with Anel whom we meet first Anel Lemaire. uh
2: tell us about her Okay, well, Anel, uh, when the book opens, she is a, a 21-year-old French woman, and she's living in a convent, and she um, is expected to take the vows and become a nun. She and her brothers were brought in to live with the nuns when they were young, after their parents died in an accident. They grew up in the part of France, which is where World War I was fought and um there's still a lot of i guess debris you could call it from that war hidden in the ground um and her parents were out for a walk and uh stepped on a buried um grenade that exploded and they were killed and so she and her brothers became orphans and her brothers are older than she is and they've always watched out for her and They want her to be a nun because they know that way she'll be safe and protected from, um, I guess, the world. But they have recently uh, gone off to join the French Foreign Legion. Her brothers got in some trouble in town. One of them, Philippe, had gone and fought in the Spanish Civil War, and he came back to France. And people there were calling him a communist, and he wasn't, but... um, He was very sensitive to that and got in a fist fight in town with the mayor's son, and then his brother jumped in to defend him. And then at that time, uh, young Frenchmen were often given the choice between going to jail or going to the Legion, and so her brothers chose to go to the French Foreign Legion. And she was very upset about that, and what she really wants most at this point in the novel is to be near her brother's. Um, And she also longs to be out in the world and to be a part of it. And she's flirted with that a little bit before the German invasion. She uh, goes out and runs errands for the nuns and goes into town quite a bit. And so she um, has some little adventures out there. And she's just not sure if she wants to be a nun, even though that's what the nuns and her brothers want for her. And the German invasion, ends up um, making that decision for her. So how does she end up at Wigwith Hall? Well, she's in the convent, and she can hear trucks on the road outside, and she realizes they're army trucks, and then she realizes that instead of going toward the front with the Germans, they are racing away from the front. And she sees also then that the road is filling with villagers and townspeople from nearby towns who are fleeing to get out of the path of the Germans. And she has to make a decision. Is she going to stay at the convent with the nuns who are oblivious to what's going on with the Germans? Or is she going to take her chances and go out on the road and try to get out of the path of the Germans? And so... She ends up deciding to take her chances. She goes out on the road, and she's part of what in France they call it um, lexode, or the exodus, which was just, you know, the roads were just filled with civilians, and they were on bicycles or on foot or in wagons. Um, They would push baby strollers filled with household items, uh, they were all just really in a state of panic because, like I said, this was where World War I um, took place. And so they they knew the Germans, and they knew they wanted to get out of their path. And so she's on the road, um, and she's, she's caught up in all of this, and she ends up um, heading toward Dunkirk, which was a French seaside resort town. Um, everybody on the road is kind of pushed that way because the Army trucks are... Um, on the road, there's cars, and it's it's just chaos. But she ends up in Dunkirk, which is sort of the end of the line, because that's where the English Channel is. And there, the beaches are covered with tens of thousands of British soldiers hoping to be rescued. And eventually they are. It's uh, It was called The Miracle of Dunkirk afterwards, and you might have seen the movie that came out this summer called Dunkirk. And Annelle manages to uh, talk her way onto a small boat and she ends up crossing the channel and on the other side she's taken in by another one of the book's main characters Mabry Springs and Mabry is the owner of Wickwith Hall which is a country house outside of London and so she brings Anel back to the house to stay there because Anel has nowhere else to go
0: so that leads perfectly into my next question, which is Mabry. <laughs> Tell us about Mabry.
2: Well, Mabry is an American. She is a Virginian. Um, and she uh, is also an orphan, which is one of the reasons she feels for Annel. But her situation growing up was completely different. She came from a prominent Virginia family and had a lot of eccentric Yet, glamorous aunts who basically raised her. And she spent much of her youth at her grandfather's plantation, which was just outside of Charlottesville. It was called Glencoe. And she led a very idyllic life there, riding horses, uh, shooting guns, growing up with uh, the idea that physically there was nothing she couldn't do. And she ended up going to England with one of her aunts when she was older to find a husband on the fox hunting circuit, and that's where she meets her husband, Tony Springs, or her eventual husband. And she's infatuated with him at first sight. He's very handsome and regal-looking in that British way, and they're actually at a fox hunt, and she's on her horse, and she's staring at him until her aunt, the very opinionated Aunt Freddie, pokes her in the ribs with her riding crop. Um, And so Mabry and Tony have a whirlwind romance. They marry, spend a few years traveling. And then when it's time to settle down and have children, Mabry finds out that there actually is something she can't do. She can't carry a baby to term, and she's devastated. So for the first time in her life, she's unsure of herself. Her relationship with Tony is strained. There's rumors he's had affairs, and now the Germans are coming. And so that's where we find her when um, the novel opens. And we soon
0: discover early on that she has a prior relationship with the third major character who is uh, supposedly a champagne merchant named Reed Carr. Uh, What does it mean for her uh, being an American in Britain in the 1930s and 1940s and what is the nature of her relationship with
1: Reed? Um,
2: Well, as an American... Mabry uh, can be impatient with the British way of doing things. When we first meet her in Chapter 2, she's urging her driver to drive faster. Uh, she's impatient with British calm and caution, and in fact, she wants to take the wheel herself, but her British husband uh, would never think that that was proper. And she and Tony, her husband, buy Wickwith Hall, and, or they don't actually buy it, it's Given to him by a relative to live in, and she redoes it from top to bottom. She's not willing to shiver in a cold, uncomfortable country house like the British did just because they and their ancestors always had. She's all about modernizing, getting things done, making things comfortable and useful. And as for Reed, she knew him back in Virginia, back at Glencoe. He was a friend of her cousins, and he would come to Glencoe from time to time. And he was actually the first great love of her life. The men of his family had a tradition of going to West Point. They would go to the University of Virginia for two years, and then West Point. And Mabry didn't want him to go to West Point. She didn't want to be the wife of a military man. As an orphan, she wanted stability, a home of her own, a husband she didn't have to worry about. But he had to go to West Point. It was what his family expected, and she felt like he chose West Point over her. So they have a past, um, but that is is ten, at least 10 years ago, and um, she hasn't seen him since then, since she'd been in England.
0: So he, it turns out, is not actually only a champagne salesman. Um, I don't think we're going too far into things. We're about as far in the plot as we're going to go without giving you freedom to decide exactly how much you want to say. But okay. I think you can tell us that he does have, a, shall we say, a more complex relationship with Winston Churchill.
2: He does. Um, he has had some issues in his own past, which bring him to become a representative of French champagne Paul Roger. And Paul Roger was actually Winston Churchill's favorite champagne And the job description for um, his position with Paul Roger was to look good in a tux and to be able to hobnob with the rich and famous. So he was friends with a lot of um, famous people, including Winston Churchill. And in doing research for the book, I read that Roosevelt liked to go outside of State Department channels, and he had a list of American businessmen living abroad that he would use, and he uh, would consult with these men, and uh, he would get them to do you know certain things for him or find out certain things for him. So in the story, uh, Reed is the connection between Churchill and Roosevelt um, that sort of leads us into... The French fleet story. Um, he, uh, it, in the beginning, when we first meet Reed, he's upset about the German invasion of France, of course, because France is his second home. And Roosevelt calls him in to meet with him. And Reed is expecting Roosevelt, who's mixing up martinis at his desk, to have a plan to help France. But instead, Reed is shocked to learn that Roosevelt has already given up on France before they've even surrendered, and he wants Reed to go to London to be with Churchill to report back to Roosevelt if there's any sign that Churchill might surrender. And so this is how eventually Reed, Mabry, and Annell all come to be at Wickwith Hall. And so Wickwith Hall, I should probably add, is based on a real country house in England where Churchill would go during the war, Um, he was a big believer in the traditions of the British Empire and he wasn't going to give that up in wartime but the problem was his own country house was visible from uh, the night sky when the moon was high as Churchill would put it meaning the moon was full so he needed another place to go and he had his detectives go out and look for an appropriate country house and they settled on this particular house that Wickwith Hall is based upon, um, and the owners were an American woman and her British husband, and she uh, was the inspiration for Mabry because she did redo the house from top to bottom, and she put in central heating, and she combined bedrooms to make a bedroom-bathroom suite, and just made the home extremely comfortable and Luxurious, and so Churchill's detectives decided that this was the place for Churchill to go. And he came with his family, friends, staff, uh, advisors, and the Oxfordshire and Buckinghamshire brigades as his guards. And, um, and then in the novel, of course, the fictional part of it is that Reed comes along as well. So that's how he's brought in, and that's how, um, Whiplith Hall came about from this real country house that was inspiration. And um, it was kind of interesting to me because the country house is a mix of British pedigree and American ingenuity. And Winston Churchill himself um, was, uh, he had a, a British father and his mother was American. So he was sort of that combination as well and I always wondered if that might be part of what appealed to him about that particular house.
0: That's an interesting idea. I'm glad you you brought that up because I was going to loop back to that question uh, because it's although the novel itself goes from 1940 to 46, that weekend at Wakeworth Hall is particularly crucial. It's sort of where everything comes together, right?
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's where uh, Mabry and Reed are reunited and um, Anel is there as well, and it's kind of what gets everything going in the novel. And um, there's also like a a big part of the novel is the the, the I guess the relations between Churchill and Roosevelt, and um, that's how the French fleet comes in because Churchill spends most of this time between May 1940 and July of 1940 pretty much begging Roosevelt for help. Um, he's asking for, you know, ships, planes, guns, anything Roosevelt can send over and Roosevelt doesn't want to send anything over because he's worried that England is going to end up surrendering because at that time, pretty much everybody thought that was what was going to happen for sure. And, um, so Reed's role and Roosevelt actually did have people in the role that Reed played. Reed's role is to observe Churchill and um relate to Roosevelt his mood and what he's doing. And then to Churchill, who knew that Reed was doing this as well, you know, he Reed was he liked having Reed around because he could always, you know, tell him, Tell your president this, tell him we need these, tell him we need, you know, We need guns. We need planes. And Roosevelt wasn't sending anything over at that point because he was worried that England was going to surrender. And if he sent that stuff over, it would end up in the hands of the Germans. And he also had to deal with the U.S. was very uh, isolationist then and did not want anything to do with the European war. So Roosevelt was doing all this secretly. And it's really interesting because one of the things I was able to use for my research with government archives of the actual correspondence between Churchill and Roosevelt from this time. And there were, you know, often mention of what is Churchill going to do with the fleet or Churchill would talk about, you know, how they really needed to get their hands on the fleet. And a lot of it too is interesting because Churchill would dictate his letters and so they were in his voice. Um and he, you know, had a very dramatic way of speaking that I think most of us don't speak in the way that he did. So they're really, they were really fascinating. And some historians actually say that when Churchill did um, bomb the French fleet, that this showed Roosevelt that um, Churchill would not, that he did something this ruthless that he would not surrender to the Germans. And that sort of led towards the lend-lease, which came a little bit later, and we did finally start sending ships and other um, weapons to help the British. Anything short of actually declaring war.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. I was a child in Britain uh, until uh, in the late 50s, early 60s, and I can still remember that voice. Um, it's it's absolutely unmistakable, Churchill. Yeah. Um, what would you like readers to take away from Wickwith Hall? Well,
2: that's a good question. I think I would like readers to take away from Wickwith Hall what I take away from reading historical fiction in general, and for me, reading about the past gives me comfort about the present. Um, We, and I mean the collective we, humanity throughout time, has been through a lot. There's been a lot of really bad, dark periods throughout history when the future looked grim, and we seem to be sort of dancing on the brink of self-destruction. But we're still here, and it seems that so far the good guys have, in the end, come out the winners. So for me, historical fiction is a testament to the resilience of humankind, and that's what gives me comfort comfort and hope for the future. So I hope readers reading Wycliffe Hall um, and revisiting such a horrible time and our history can actually find maybe a little bit of comfort in our own time now when everything seems at times you know dark and difficult that um, we'll make it through. That's a lovely sentiment. So what about yourself? Do you have another novel underway? Oh, I do. I do. Um it's it's something fun although it also has dark moments and it's it's a historical novel. It's set at the turn of the 19th century in France, and it involves Coco Chanel, Um, and it explores the, really the whole, the main theme of it is exploring the few choices that were available to girls born into poverty at that time, and, you know, the limited options they had in trying to get out of poverty and trying to make their lives better. Well, it sounds oh, like about, fun, yeah. <laughs> it is, yeah, I'm excited about it. It's, it's fun to write and research, too. That's great. Well, thank you so much for sharing your time with us today. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's been fun to talk about Wickwith Hall. And thank you
0: for listening to our podcast. Once again, I am CP Leslie, and today I've been talking with Barbara Ridley about when it's over. You can find out more about her at www.barbarridley.com. I've also been speaking with Judith Little about her novel Wickwith Hall. Her website is www.judithlittle.com. That's Judith with an E at the end. Like us on Facebook, search for NB Historical Fiction, and follow us on Twitter at NewBooksHistFic. If you do, you'll see each time we post a new interview. You can also find out more about me, my website, and my books at blog.cplesley.com, where I upload expanded posts about the interviews and in general discuss history, historical fiction, and the rapidly changing publishing industry. Goodbye until my next conversation about new books in historical fiction.